Hi, my name's Tim. And I'm Cassandra. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the European, European Soapbox. Hey, Cassandra. So, what is the European Union? That's a very hard question. Um, so there are so many moving parts and different institutions that make up the EU. So we, we can talk about today is a over a kind of a skeleton. What goes into the EU, the institutions, the history, all of that. Yeah, and I, I guess this was sort of an unfair <laughs> question on my part. But we really want to try to answer this question and really introduce what the European Union is um, how it functions as an institution, and the historical context of how it came about. Mm -hmm. So I guess what we can start with is World War II. So a bunch of death, destruction, the Nazis right on the rise, um, a lot of conflict within, I guess, all of the world, <laughs> specifically Western Europe is where a lot of the death kind of took place. Um, At least in the context of the EU, that's what we're going to focus <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, that's what we're going to focus on. Um, so what happened afterwards is the EU was in complete and utter destruction. There was essentially no economy because everything was destroyed. So Marshall, it was a secretary of state. The secretary of state, yeah. yeah. there we go. Um, he thought of a plan that would help reconstruct Europe. And this was giving a great sum of money to European states to kind of force cooperation between them to kind of get them to rebuild their own economy with our money, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, and not only was it to economically sort of put everyone in Western Europe back on their feet, but it was also to ensure peace. After such a destructive and awful, terrible war, mm -hmm. um, really priority number one in Europe was to prevent another one. Uh, this was World War II, basically right off the back of World War I. Um, and like Cassandra said, it, the destruction and the economic, like, everything was gone, mm -hmm. plain and simple. Uh, no factories, no people. Um, and so the Marshall Plan provided this aid to rebuild what was left of specifically Western Europe. And so, Cassandra, do you want to sort of talk about, like, the... The next steps. Yeah, but also the hidden aspects of the Marshall Plan. Yeah, so one thing about that that we'll talk about later is kind of keeping Western Europe under Western influence. And this was by giving them money, we kind of give them the opportunity to reinvest in the American, I guess, economy. Um, one thing that Marshall did make very clear is the only way that they were going, or Western European states were going to get the money was if they worked together and help our economy in the meantime yeah and adopt a, a capitalist system so that was yeah. the big thing this is it's now sort of symbolizes the war between capital capitalism and communism um an ideal ideological but also a, a real conflict so this this sparks the the cold war era conflicts um which basically defined europe till the the fall of the soviet union yeah and that's something that we'll touch on in a little bit um like something that happened right after, I guess kind of right after World War II, is the Treaty of Paris in 1951. Like you mentioned earlier, having another war start was one of the biggest threats to European peace. So the Treaty of Paris 
was initially between France and Germany, um, Germany being one of the biggest aggressors in World War II with their neighbor, France, who they so completely took advantage of during that time, forcing them to cooperate by kind of pooling their coal and steel together. And coal and steel at the time, it was kind of the basis of industry. It was how you made tanks, weapons, guns, everything that could equal war. And by combining the two in between the two countries, you kind of prevented a war. Like there could not be a war without hurting both countries. Exactly. And so this the European coal and steel community really started to regulate the industrial production between these two under like a central authority. Mm-hmm. So this is the first aspect of the the modern European Union, I guess. Um, and initially it included um, Italy, France, West Germany, because Germany was divided at the time, mm-hmm. uh, Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Yeah, so this helped regulate the production, like I said, under a central authority. And the central authority, as we will go through, will kind of develop into what the EU as an institution really is. Uh, it makes it easier to produce, distribute all of the main components of modern-day warfare. Um, and with, I guess, with the ECSC, along with the Marshall Plan, it pushes economic improvement that, like you said, also kind of forces peace between all of those countries. Yeah, and so I, I think an important note to make here is it starts as economic integration. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll see how that develops, and we'll make, it, we'll make a clear note of that. Um, because this is an argument that I personally really find important to the stability and the success of the European Union. Um, their economic integration and how combined they are is really what drives their success, in my opinion. Um, but like Cassandra said, the motivator for this economic integration is European peace. Yeah. And like you said, I completely agree. Economics is kind of the foundation of what a state will be later on. Exactly. And so that actually brings us to our next sort of treaty and next <laughs> important part of the European Union, um, the Treaty of Rome in 1957. So this establishes the European Economic Community. More or less, it establishes further integration economically, specifically in the aspects of trade. So it makes it easier to send capital, um, which is money, goods, factories, etc., etc., um, labor, which is people, more or less, and goods across the European member states. So this really starts to establish the European Union as an institution. Yeah, it was kind of the next step to really, I guess, force cooperation. Like the ECSE was a good first step, and this one really concretely put into, I guess, laws, whatever you might call it, um, of economic integration specifically with aspects to trade and taxation Mm -hmm. so for example if you wanted to send cheese from italy to france um this 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 allows that to be possible without having barriers Mm -hmm. which is really fundamental to what we'll see later as the european union will develop into a single market but a big sort of i don't want to say caveat of this because it's sort of inevitable is it starts to politicize the EU. Mm-hmm. And that's huge, especially as it comes to immigration, because that's such a highly debated topic that we'll see later. Um, and I, I guess when we talk about Schengen. Um, so in the 1970s, 1960s, when other states are coming in, I guess this becomes more political because there are so many other states coming in with different currencies, different goods, different people wanting to move everywhere. 
Yeah, and we'll see solutions to some of these issues um, or attempts at solutions, let's put mm-hmm. it that way. And the 60s and the 70s in Europe were a very dynamic time period. You see huge social movements, women's liberation, um, sort of suffrage movements across Europe. You, you see these things develop socially as well, which then there's a desire not only for the, the European Union um, to be a economic identity, but also eventually a social identity. And this isn't very prominent at first, but eventually it will develop into the modern European Union. Yeah, what is, I guess, what it means to be European, which all, I mean, like you said, wasn't always kind of an identity to identify with and yeah, how it is. Yeah, and it may not always be. Um, <laughs> and so we'll, we'll see how these, these cultural movements um, change over time. And so with the 70s and the 60s, we see occasional um, sort of new countries wanting to join the European Union. And most notably during this time period is the the United Kingdom, um, which is really huge to everything that's going on. They're a huge economic power in Europe, um, a lot of population. And the 70s and 80s were Thatcher era United Kingdom, which brings in a different aspect of politics. Prior to this, we saw huge welfare states growing in the European Union. And this and certain aspects of Gaulism even and Reagan politics start to infiltrate Europe and bring new ideas to the table. Yeah, the integration of the UK into the EU added another political legitimization kind of feel for what the EU would be and now is. Yeah, and so that brings us to our next big thing. So the Schengen area, like we touched on earlier, the free movement of people. Um, The Schengen area was kind of established in 1985. Um, Not all EU members are in the Schengen area, um, like, but not all. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so there are countries outside of the European Union that are also in the Schengen area. For example, uh, Switzerland. (laughs) This is a personal (laughs) example for me, but it, it makes sense. Switzerland is entirely surrounded by countries in the European Union. At that time, it wasn't, uh, but they joined later. And so this, it makes sense for them to be in the Schengen area. The free movement of people and in the EU itself, the allowing labor to move more freely across European states, it not only brings in the economic component, it furthers that, but it adds a social element to the movement of people. Vacation. Like, if you, if you want to take a vacation somewhere in Europe and you're a European citizen, that's very easy for you to do. Same with studying. Like, if I'm, say, in English, or I guess, better example, if I'm a German student and I want to study in Spain, it is so much easier for me to go over and study than, say, if I was a truly international or, I guess, an American student trying to study in Europe. Very true. And after 1985, things begin to change. Um, Starting with 1989, German reunification. Uh, This is the first sort of component and experience Western Europe has and the European Union has to integrating Eastern Europe. It resembles and it sort of starts the collapse of the Soviet Union um, as now Germany is completely reunified and it adds an aspect to the EU. Germany is a... It's a power now. Huge. Yeah. yeah. They have economic say, they have economic stability, they have larger population. 
And so this adds a political element that we will talk about when it comes to specifically leadership roles in the European Union. Yeah, so with West Germany uniting with Eastern Germany, um, becoming one state, it makes it so much easier for the U.S. to kind of continue having control over what is now Western Europe. Keeping the Soviet influence out of Western Europe was incredibly important, especially with negotiations, political, economic negotiations between Western Europe and the U.S. Well, that that Soviet influence doesn't last too much longer. (laughs) So we soon see the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, and we see the integration of Eastern European countries into the European Union. And so we see a very large growth of the, the EU itself. Member countries start to join. We see Poland, Austria, Czechoslovakia, or the Czech Republic and Slovakia eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this contributes to the growth. And that brings us to 1993. Yeah, the Maastricht Treaty. So that kind of creates a single market in Europe by creating the European Monetary Union. Uh, it also establishes what, the Euro, uh, the Eurozone, um, if you would like to touch on Yes, that. and so it also adds to the central bank. So this establishes the European Central Bank under a monetary system. So not only is the European Union connected economically, it is now connected monetarily. At least a lot of the places are. I, I know the UK elected to use the pound, um, but for example, these, these economic systems are very different across Europe. Um, a lot of more southern European countries, they need to leverage currency. Um, and for example, Germany, they have a lot of capital. So the, introdu- the introduction of the euro it spreads risk to financial issues, but it also makes them a little harder to deal with, which we will talk about when we, when we address the Great Recession um, the, and the Euro crisis, which followed. Yeah, so it adds more political and economic ties between all of the countries that are using the Euro at the time. Yes, and it establishes a single market in the European Union, which is fundamental to basically free trade. Mm-hmm. Um, it eliminates any barriers that were left from the previous economic sort of treaties that occurred. And similar to the Schengen area, not all EU countries use the euro, not all euro, I guess, euro-using countries are in the EU. Yeah, and so after Maastricht, um, almost a, a little over a decade later, comes the Lisbon Treaty in 2007. And I like to think the Lisbon Treaty is arguably a glue that kind of connects all of the EU pieces together. So it further integrates all of the countries economically, politically. It concretely establishes a way of foreign policy between all of the states and then international states. Um, yeah. And it, it, it does something that it was sort of obvious to see coming when you look at the establishment of the EU. Um, but the EU starts out as an economic integration solely. And this starts to solidify the social and political component of the European Union. It's kind of what makes it a more than just economic institution. Yes, which we're not going to argue if that's good or bad, (laughs) because I know there's a lot of people that that have different opinions, but it it is what it does. Um, It starts to address things like human rights, Um, for example, immigration security, things like this, which were beyond the economic sphere previously. It makes the supranational existence of the EU significantly more concrete and have 
a lot more concrete power over or not i guess over but it kind of distributes it with like between all of the countries that are eu members yes and lisbon did something um the treaty itself which we didn't realize would have such a huge effect and it established a process to leave the european union Mm -hmm. which we saw the uk do um and as of right now in 2021 the uk has left the european union and this sort of summarizes some of the more current challenges to the european union yeah so another thing that we i guess we'll talk about later is democratic backsliding a liberalism and on a liberalism note uh how countries or how the eu deals with countries who are being considered illiberal so hungary is one of the big ones now yeah and it also it, it brings up the question of the covid pandemic of course um, it's an inevitable part of discussing the european union as it has such a, a universal effect on the world i guess mm-hmm. and then i guess now in 2021 we have 27 european member states um, we have 19 use the euro and we have 26 in the Schengen area. And as Cassandra mentioned before, not everybody from the EU is in the Schengen area. Not everybody in the EU uses the euro, as you can tell by the numbers. And so now this is, this is what it looks like right now. Yeah. It's like a three part Venn diagram is how I was just imagining. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, there, there are a lot of other treaties that, that go beyond that and create mm-hmm. a lot of more circles in that Venn diagram, but you are right. Um, and so I'm going to ask you once again, a hard question, but hopefully now it's easier. How would you define the European Union? I guess with all everything we've talked about, the EU is an institution that has both economic, political, and international influence over EU member states. How about you? What, what would you say? I'm, I'm going to boil it down a little further so that we really have something easy to work with. <laughs> I'm going to say integration of Europe, because essentially that is what it boils down mm-hmm. to. It starts with economic, moves to social. Um, and of course, there are. it's a lot more complex, as Cassandra mentioned. Yeah. But essentially, that is what the European Union is. It's an institution that integrates the people of Europe. I think we laid out a good skeleton between our definition, history, all of that. Yeah, I think that the historical and economic component that we sort of talked about, as well as how it developed all these treaties and some of the important um, historical facts really helps us define what the European Union is today. Yeah, so I hope you learned something. I know I did from you just speaking. Um, We hope you learn a thing or two with us next week on the European Soapbox. The European Soapbox podcast reflects only the opinions of the authors and do not reflect the views of any affiliated and or mentioned organizations. We are students still in the learning process, so information should be taken with a grain of salt and not blindly accepted. The information is for informational purposes only and do not intend to serve as any recommendation. We do not intend to isolate anyone on this podcast and encourage diversity and differences in opinion. The European Soapbox stands independently from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The authors are the sole owners of the rights to the European Soapbox podcast. 
As students, we ask for the opportunity to grow and improve in our podcasting journey and progression as individuals. If you'd like to reach out to us, send us an email at europeansoapbox at gmail.com. Podcast is hosted by Cassandra Alvarino and Tim Fry. All music is produced by Till Iringer. That's T-I-L-L-Y-D-E-A-N dot W-A-V on Instagram. A special thanks to our friends, families, and supporters.